from the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Paying for Prophylaxis, Does Vitamin Therapy Make Economic Sense? Well, an agent is simply a simulated person. We're only interested in a limited set of the characteristics, and the characteristics that we're concerned about are the traits, in this case, are the traits that would influence the progression to AMD. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Ryan declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. As seen from here, the first podcast for physicians, the first podcast to offer CME credit, and the first to offer multinational editions, is now co-sponsored by the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. The ASCRS recognizes the power of this new medium in communication and education of physicians everywhere. This partnership will allow us to bring new content to you and add new voices to our community. From Manhattan to Mumbai, from the Bay Area to Beijing, one conversation as seen from here. If a medication has been demonstrated to be beneficial as prophylaxis, how broadly should it be used? In program number 81, we asked this question regarding treatment and ocular hypertension risk. Today, we ask the same question of vitamin supplements and AMD. To find out whether prophylactic vitamin therapy makes sense, David Ryan applied the tools of economics. Easy for him, he's an economist. What evidence exists that vitamin supplements are beneficial in the treatment of AMD? Well, uh, what inspired us to do this study is there's two major um, primary sources of information that have studied this, this question, and both have found similar results. Uh, the first is called the Age-Related Eye Disease Study, or ARIDS, um, and this is a study of 4,754 patients um, between 1992 and 2001, uh, and the first set of study results were published in 2001. Um, and essentially what they looked at were uh, several different types of vitamin therapies um, with different dosages uh, given to different um, uh, patient groups, um, all uh, patients primarily either with, with no advanced AMD um, and with no uh, visual impairment at the start of the study. Uh, and they looked to see whether the vitamin supplements had an impact on the progression of AMD uh, and also its impact on other visual disorders. But their main findings were that um, taking vitamin supplements reduced the risk of progressing to advanced AMD events, uh, meaning geographic atrophy or choroidal neovascularization from earlier stage AMD, uh, and the reduction was by about 25%. The second study was done in Rotterdam, um, the Rotterdam Eye Study, and also was a long-term randomized control study uh, from 1990 to 2004, and again looked at a little over 4,000 patients. <clears throat> and that study looked, instead of at vitamin supplements, at the level of vitamin intake or nutrient intake that people had from different foods. Uh, and what they found um, was essentially the same thing. 
uh, but a little bit stronger results. And they found that people who had a higher intake of these similar uh, vitamin therapies or, or, or vitamin contents um, had a reduction in the incidence of early stage AMD of about 35%. So taken together, I think the two studies provide pretty strong um, medical evidence that these vitamin supplements are effective in preventing both the onset of AMD, which we didn't look at in our paper, but more importantly, the progression of early AMD to late stage disease. Your paper discusses something called QALY. What is QALY? QALY is a quality. It stands for Quality Adjusted Life Year. Um, And essentially what that is is a measure which can adjust the impact of a disease in terms of both its morbidity and mortality. Um, And the big advantage of looking at a quality is that if it's measured consistently between different disease states, uh, it allows you to compare the benefits of interventions for one disease to the benefits of an intervention for another disease. So you can compare very disparate diseases with different uh, different types of benefits to each other. Like what? I mean, can, can you give me an example of comparing two different things? Sure. Well, so for example, um, if you think of the main impacts of a disease as being either or the shortening of life or the reduction in quality of life, um, and that can come through you know, a number of different things, either symptoms such as pain or vision loss um, or disability or things like that. Uh, it could be difficult to compare the symptoms, for example, of, say, chronic back pain to the symptoms of vision loss from uh, from an ophthalmologic disease. So what you'd like is a measure that takes the impact of those things on people's quality of life and compares them, uh, puts them in a single measure so you can compare across disease states. Like currency, sort of. Sort of like that. I mean, I think the way that you would think of a quality um, and the way qualities are typically measured is uh, they ask patients um, to do what's called a time trade-off between two different disease, uh, two different health states. And they'll ask, for example, how much time in perfect health is uh, a year with symptom X worth? And so, for example, a patient with chronic pain may say, um, uh, that there's a big impact of that, that they would actually trade you know, half a year of life um, to have a year free of chronic pain. Um, and so they would get a quality value of 0.5. Uh, with visual disorders, what we find is we find very rapid quality losses immediately at the loss of acuity um, where people fall from sort of a normal quality level to uh, a lower quality level of about 0.75 between an acuity level of um, you know, normal vision of 20-20 to vision of um, 20-100 around moderate impairment. And then after that, uh, the quality losses taper off from visual impairment and tail at it around 0.5 for complete blindness. David, what did your study seek to answer? What we wanted to see was the relative health value of prescribing arid vitamin supplements to AMD patients following the diagnosis of disease. So what we were looking for um, was an answer to the question of if you were to give all patients that you diagnose with early AMD vitamins, would the health benefits of that be enough that it would be considered a good use of healthcare resources or a valuable use of healthcare resources compared to other interventions? 
it's impractical to perform a prospective case control study because of the insidiousness of, of the pathology. How did you approach this, this problem? There's a couple of ways to answer this. I mean, there, there, people have done prospective case control studies of um, you know, the natural history of AMD and the natural history of AMD as influenced uh, by vitamin therapy. So the two studies I mentioned earlier, the ARD study and the Rotterdam study, both did that. Um, what's Im- impractical is to keep doing these prospective case control studies whenever you have a new research question. So not every research question is going to be available to you when you start a prospective um, prospective study of patients over the long term, and they're very costly. So what we sought to do was to build a model that would incorporate information from um, both those two studies and then also the very large amount of research that's been done in this area uh, in order to try to harness the available information to answer a research question that we have now, which is what's the value of giving vitamins to patients um, who have, have AMD? I mean, we know that it has a health benefit from the prospective study, but is it cost-effective to give them vitamins? Now, when you say build a model, what do you mean by, by a model? Uh, well, a model is a simplified, uh, a simplified schematic of the disease process. And we build it, and the, the nuts and bolts of it is that you build it in a computer. And essentially what you try to do is think of the probability that patients will move from one state of the disease to the next state of the disease or to any other state of the disease relative to the probability of staying in the same place. Um, Once you've built the natural history component of that and program that into the computer, you can then layer in different things on top of it. So then you can layer in different treatments. Um, You can layer in different types of interventions, for example, screening or something like that. And you can evaluate what the impact of um, of those new treatments and new interventions would be on the natural course of the disease, given information about what the likely impact or effect of those interventions are. Now, your model used something called an agent. When I think of an, of an agent, I think of James Bond. What, <laughs> what, what's, an, what's an agent here? Well, an agent is simply a simulated person. So we call them an agent and not a person because, one, they're not people. Um, they're, you know, computerized entities. Um, but more importantly, they don't need to be as complicated as a person um, because we're only interested in a limited set of the characteristics. And the characteristics that we're concerned about are the traits, in this case, are the traits that would influence the progression to AMD. You employed something called a stochastic micro-simulation. Um, what, what does that mean? I know that stochastic means that it has something to do with, with randomness. Is, is that right? Yeah, I mean, what a stochastic microsimulation model um, means is that at the individual, or in this case, the agent level, um, what happens is in part the over, a function of the overall probability of a given event happening, which you find from the population, and in part a, fa- uh, a factor of random chance. So in practice, what that means is that if you run two agents, with identical starting characteristics through the simulation model, you can expect to get different results for the two two individual agents. And that's a lot like real life. Over many, many simulations and many, many agents, 
the confidence intervals of um, the population of agents converges to the data that you use to drive the model. So the population um, confidence intervals that you see uh, from your population-based study data that you're using to drive the model. Let me make sure that I that I understand what you're what you're saying now. I'm I'm, I'm going to try to to spell it out and and stop me if if I've gotten off track here. You've created a population and, and population in in sort of quotes here, and the population consists of these agents, which are independent entities within your computer program, and the entities um, make choices based upon probabilities that you've set up within the context of the of the program and overlaid on that some randomness so that the agents don't necessarily make the uh, same choice uh, when when they're given the uh, same question each each time um, but that the, the probability of their choosing any one answer or the probability of any one event in the course of their pathology happening is determined by a certain set of, of, of probabilities that you've put in at the um, start. So that if you take a very large population of these, of these agents, the, the outcomes are sort of what you had initially set up with your probabilistic model, but they're still sort of working as these independent entities within the context of your larger model. Right. I mean, I, I think that's, that's accurate to put it that way. I mean, a, an example of this would be, you know, if we wanted to estimate the risk of developing, say, neovascularization in a, sing, in, in a single agent's eye over a single year, um, from a population-based study uh, that watched people, we can derive an estimate of the aggregate probability of an eye moving to neovascularization. But, you know, we know um, as, you know, just economists and certainly ophthalmologists know better than we do, that for any one person, um, there's a good deal of variation around this average. So what a stochastic microsimulation computes is a random number for each simulated individual with an eye of that type. And then it compares this number to the probability of the event happening. And based on the random number and the uh, underlying probability that we get from external studies, it makes a decision about whether that eye is going to progress to the next stage, in this case, neovascularization or not. Over all of the simulated agents, particularly as you increase the number, the confidence intervals or the range of outcomes that you see for your population of agents converge on the mean population value. Um, and this is different from other types of um, a non-stochastic model uh, in which every time you put a patient through or an agent or uh, a cohort of patients through, you'd get the same answer every time. That's called the discrete model. I was going to ask just that, that if you have, if once you have a large N, a large population of agents, if things tend to, to converge towards the uh, mean, what is the, the advantage of having this complicated model with these agents over doing a simple probability calculation? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, I think the first thing to note is that we're talking about one transition in a model that may take many, many different transitions. So the transition from any one state to neovascularization, the probability of transitioning from any one state to neovascularization may be different depending on where you are during the pathology. Um, 
There's also many other probabilities, the probability of being treated in that year, the probability of having a symptom detected if you progress, the probability of dying from natural causes. Uh, there's lots of different probabilities that are going on. So you know, first, the purpose of building a model in general, as opposed to just looking at the population-based data and multiplying a couple of numbers, is that it allows you to incorporate a lot of different parameters together and see what the joint impact of um, simulating all of them together uh, over a time period creates. Um, in terms of a micro, uh, a micro simulation or an agent-based model over a simple probabilistic calculation, there's really two big advantages, and we've taken advantage of the first one. Um, the major benefit of it is it helps us manage the complexity created by modeling multiple eye diseases and multiple states of the same eye disease in the same model. Um, you know, we built this model and other models that are in the same program over many years, and obviously, you know, we make mistakes. We have to go back and make corrections, and we have to make modifications. Um, and in many ways, I find and other people find microsimulations easier to manage in terms of adding parameters and making modifications. Um, you know, I find them easier to, to handle than discrete models, which essentially uh, require you to create individual discrete cohorts for each different um, combination of probabilities that you're looking at. So with two probabilities, there's not a lot of advantage in doing a model like this. But as you um, increase the number of different transitions and number of, dif uh, number of parameters in the model, uh, it becomes more and more difficult to keep track of them. And the microsimulation um, gives you some techniques to, to handle that complexity. I mean, the second big benefit of microsimulation is that it allows the interaction of specific agents. Um, so it's more commonly used in disease transmission models where you can see where the interaction of the agents would be very valuable. You want to know how one person meets another person. Um, their mixing patterns, where they live, things like that. Uh, so we don't take a lot of advantage of that in this model because AMD is not uh, transmissible. Um, but it does allow for some interesting modeling opportunities in the future. So for example, we could have individual agents. Uh, we could assign them to individual providers, and we could see, we could test what the provider-agent interactions, uh, effects of provider-agent interactions on um, disease management uh, and disease progression and adherence to therapy. We could also look at patient-patient interactions. So if there's people all in a social circle, we could see if recommending uh, vitamin therapy to one patient would lead them to tell their friends about it, and then their adherence to vitamin therapy for their symptoms, if they have symptoms, increases. Um, you know, we could do some neat things with it. We're not currently, and in this paper we didn't use uh, much agent-agent interaction. Now, these agents are complicated. There are a lot of uh, things that can potentially go on. They can move from one stage of the pathology forward in, in terms of the pathology getting worse, or, or even there's some probability uh, of moving backwards of the pathology getting better. Um, which parameters in, in this model were based on, on which actual clinical data? Well, there's a lot, and there's a lot of data that goes into it, um, and you know the best way to get a handle on it is to to read the paper. But I can sort of review sort of the major sources of data. Uh, the incidence data 
comes from a number of studies, but primarily from the Beaver Dam Eye Study uh, from Wisconsin, the Rotterdam Eye Study, and the Blue Mountains Eye Study. Um, the progression parameters between early and intermediate AMD states, um, and from those states to geographic atrophy and, and neovascularization came from a set of previously unpublished estimates from the ARD study data. Um, the vision loss and clinical effectiveness data for the treatment of CNV came from primarily from clinical trial data, um, such as the TAP study and others. Uh, service use probabilities were drawn from national service utilization surveys, uh, specifically the National Ambulatory Medical Care Survey, which keeps track of the number of visits to ophthalmologists and, um, that, that occur each year. And quality losses from visual impairment and blindness were taken um, from published studies primarily from uh, a group led by Melissa and Gary Brown. You incorporated cost into the, the model. How did you work cost into the, the model structure? Well, I think the way to think about the model structure is the first thing that we tried to do was to model the disease progression of AMD um, without any medical treatment. From that, we you know, determined well, what would happen to you if you uh, became blind. And there was a study that indicated that there was a certain percentage of people with visual impairment and blindness above the population average are admitted to nursing homes. So we incorporated the cost of nursing homes. Then we layered on top of that treatment, all types of medical treatment that would occur for AMD, both uh, the new, you know, the innovative treatment of vitamins that we're looking at here and traditional treatments for uh, CNV. Um, and for each of those treatments and medical choices, um, there's costs associated with them. So what we strive to do, since we don't really know what typical care is of AMD, is we took the preferred practice patterns of the American Academy of Ophthalmology and we codified them into a set of procedure codes um, uh, associated with each diagnostic category. So if the, the practice pattern said somebody with intermediate AMD, you see them at the ophthalmologist this many times a year and you have a dilate eye exam and so on, uh, we then translated those recommendations into specific procedure codes and went to um, medical claims data, um, primarily the Medicare fee schedule, and drew the reimbursement rates for those uh, services from, from that data set. So when an agent goes through uh, the natural history, if they're diagnosed and if they're in treatment and they receive treatment, from that list of codes, we've got a cost associated with that. And each time the patient goes into that state, we incur, we book a cost, and then we collect those costs over all agents over the entire population. It's well and good to, to create a complicated model like this, but did you perform any sort of validation? We did. We did, and I, I think that's one of the strengths of our model. Uh, what we did was we compared, we ran the model um, without vitamin therapy uh, because that you know, wasn't around um, uh, until recently. And we compared the prevalence results for early AMD, uh, geographic atrophy, CNV, and then blindness and visual impairment caused by AMD to a set of estimates that were put together um, primarily by a working group um, sponsored by the NEI uh, that, that 
created a meta-analysis of existing population-based studies. Um, I mean, overall, when we compare our model to those estimates, uh, we do pretty well overall. So all of our estimates are within an order of magnitude of what the NEI does um, produces. Uh, we're never way off from anything. Um, you know, that said, there are some differences, and you need to sort of think of the differences in terms of what might be causing them and what's their impact on the policy conclusions of the paper. So the main differences are relative to the NEI estimates. We overpredict early AMD, and we slightly overpredict CNV, and we slightly underpredict uh, geographic atrophy. And this results in pretty good estimates of visual impairment and slight underestimates of blindness related to um, related to AMD. So, you know, the big question is why are there differences? Um, and there's a couple of reasons. The reason why we overpredict um, early AMD is essentially a difference in, in definitions of the disease. So the NEI definition does not include any pigment abnormalities um, without drusen, and we did. And uh, you know, there's emerging evidence to support that. So essentially, the difference between our estimate and their estimate is somewhat equal to the incremental number of patients who have pigment abnormalities without drusen. Um, there's also differences in the populations between the ones that comprise the NEI data. They were from uh, studies that were done in the 80s and early 90s. Um, there's treatment differences between now and then, uh, which would uh, tend to somewhat explain our, uh, our overprediction of CNV and underprediction of GA. Uh, and then there's just sample-to-sample -sample differences. So um, even in large samples, uh, you're probably going to get variations between studies. And the ARD study relative to um, the earlier studies predicted less geographic atrophy and more choroidal neovascularization. But overall, um, well, I, let me say, uh, the patients in this ARD study developed more CNV and less geographic atrophy relative to the earlier studies. Um, but overall, they developed roughly the same amount of end-stage um, vision-threatening AMD. What constituted cases and controls for, for the study, and what main outcome measures did you use? Um, well, the nice thing about this is that you can really exactly match your cases and controls because uh, you're creating agents instead of using real people. So essentially what we did for the case um, was we uh, ran the simulation with a set of um, agents with given uh, characteristics related to their gender and age and uh, ethnicity. And we gave them vitamins upon diagnosis. And for our control, we ran the same individuals um, through the simulation, and we didn't give them vitamins. And then the results are equal to a comparison of the, the incremental difference in cost between the case group and the control divided by the incremental difference in qualities between the case group and the control. Can you tell me what your main outcome measures were in this study? Um, yeah, we were looking at the extent of disease progression generally, and we measured that through years and severity of visual impairment. Um, we also collected the cost of ophthalmic care 
the cost of nursing home services, uh, and quality adjusted life years that were associated with uh, loss of vision. Can I have you tell me what the findings of your of your study were? What your results were? Um, I mean, the main finding, the the takeaway message is that vitamins are a cost effective preventive treatment for end stage AMD. Um, the actual cost per quality was um, about twenty two thousand dollars. So it cost about twenty two thousand dollars per quality gained. Um, the subtext behind that is the intervention on the individual level is a, a relatively mild intervention in terms of the increase in cost per person. Um, and the benefits are also uh, relatively mild. When you're looking at the, the clinical benefits of the, um, of the intervention, uh, patients with AMD without vitamin therapy um, about 10% of them developed geographic atrophy, and about 16% of them developed choroidal neovascularization. So at any point in their life, they had um, some early-stage AMD. That's the number that went on to GA or CNV in either eye. Um, with vitamins, that number dropped to 8.1% who developed geographic atrophy and 13% who um, developed choroidal neovascularization. Um, in terms of visual impairment, which is really sort of the bottom line of this, the percentage of patients with AMD who ever developed visual impairment or blindness in either eye without vitamins was a little under 21.5%, and this fell to 17.5% with vitamins. Um, and then maybe most importantly, uh, in terms of vision loss in the better-seeing eye, the percentage who ever developed visual impairment or blindness in the better-seeing eye fell from 7% without vitamins to 5.8% uh, with patients with vitamins. Now, those numbers are ever. The other benefit that we saw of vitamins was not only were people less likely to um, ever develop these symptoms, but they developed them later in life and spent fewer years of time uh, with the condition. Now, since cost is one of the parameters that's incorporated into the model, I imagine that that your that your model is sensitive to the to the cost of vitamins. Can you comment on this? Yeah, it is sensitive to the cost of vitamins. Uh, there's a couple of things to, to there's a couple of ways to look at that. Um, if you set the cost of vitamins, I mean, the first the optimistic way to look at it, which is if you set the cost of vitamins to the lowest possible price of vitamins that we observe, which is essentially an internet price where you're buying the different vitamin supplements yourself at the lowest possible price. Um, the cost-effectiveness of the intervention uh, improves quite dramatically, and in fact, is, is a little bit cost-saving. Um, so it's essentially right about cost-neutral relative to the later costs that it averts. Um, the reality is that not many people are, are going to um, are, are likely to be able to get that price, and, and probably more likely most patients are going to look for some type of simpler combination vitamin which combines the different doses which are, are pretty complex into a single pill that they can take every day. Um, but even if you assume that vitamins cost twice as much, the cost effectiveness of vitamin therapy was still um, just a little over $60,000 per quality, which while certainly not as favorable as $22,000 per quality, is still in the range of um, healthcare interventions that would be uh, generally recommended in this country. 
I imagine that your model is also sensitive to the amount of clinical benefit that's obtained by the use of vitamins. If subsequent research demonstrates that vitamins, or for that matter, some other dietary supplement, is less effective than, than thought, at what point would the effectiveness from a cost standpoint break even? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the, it, it, interest, it, you know, it raises an interesting question of, of what would break even, you know, what, what would constitute breaking even? So there's, there's a number of ways to think of, it. think of it. The easiest way to think of breaking even would be um, where the cost of the intervention uh, are equal to the averted health costs that occur in the future. Uh, which essentially would be a cost-neutral approach. Um, with the baseline cost of vitamins that we included uh, and, the, and the baseline effectiveness that we included, this is not a, a break-even um, health strategy. Uh, it requires um, the expenditure of money, and it provides a health benefit for that. Um, but the health benefit, uh, the, the amount of health benefit that it provides for the cost um, would be considered reasonable or even favorable uh, compared to other health interventions that are um, uh, that people you know typically will, will purchase. The flip side of that, which is what I think you're saying, is at what point of ineffectiveness of vitamins would you really say this is not worth doing? Um, and that's both uh, a technical question of modeling and a subjective question of where you would set a threshold for um, what would be an unacceptable, um, unacceptable cost for a health intervention. Currently, with the current effectiveness um, and the current cost of vitamins, uh, we have a cost effectiveness of about um, of $22,000 per quality. If you reduce the effectiveness um, of vitamins by 25%, so you say they're uh, 25% their effectiveness is 25% worse than um, what we use in the model. The cost effectiveness of the intervention increases to about $45,000 per quality. So then the question for that, you know, I think that's probably in the reasonable range of saying um, of, of doubts about the effectiveness uh, of vitamins. Um, so the question would be, you know, if they're only that effective, so if they're less effective than they are now, is that a good, still a good value? Um, and the way we think about cost effectiveness, or at least the way the WHO thinks about cost effectiveness, is in terms of multiples of a nation's gross national product per capita. Um, and what they say is that if uh, an intervention is less than one times um, a nation's gross national product per capita, then it's a good idea to pursue it. If it's between one in three times that number, then uh, you should consider doing it, but it's, it's not a slam dunk. And if it's more than three times uh, a nation's gross, gross domestic product per capita, then you should probably, probably look for other things to do. And that's per quali? Per quali, yeah. The cost, yeah, the cost per quali. So, I mean, in the U.S., I think the, the GDP per capita... Um, in 2005, was that it was right around $48,000. It may not be exactly right, um, but give or take a thousand in either direction. So, with reduced effectiveness, this would be right at the borderline of um, you should pretty much always do it to you could consider not doing it sometimes.
Huh. You know, that, that, that's, an, that's an interesting way of framing things then. And, and so that if, if vitamins were found to be, let's say, 25% less effective than they are, then it would be a kind of a, of a borderline choice for someone in the U.S. Uh, for someone outside of the U.S. In a, in a poor country, it would probably not be an advisable thing to recommend vitamins for macular degeneration. Does that sound right? I, I think so. I mean, if, if you're in a country where your GDP per capita is, you know, $1,000 per person, um, uh, the cost effectiveness of vitamins given, you know, given the cost inputs for the United States that we have in our model and given the cost uh, of vitamins in the United States, even with the effectiveness that it has, um, that, that's been demonstrated in the ARD study. And I, I think there's some reasons to think that the level of effectiveness that we assumed in our model is probably conservative, not an overestimate. Um, but even at those levels, uh, you'd get a cost per quality of about 22000 So three times GDP in you know, a very poor country could be $3,000. So you probably have other health priorities in that situation, and you might not want to devote money to this. Um, you know, that being said, it's difficult to translate cost-effectiveness results from one health system to another because the cost of health care differs so much between countries. So um, in another country, you may be able to get the same vitamin supplements at a lower price, or um, people may never be able to access uh, laser photocoagulation therapy for CNV. So the impacts of disease may be um, more severe if, if you don't prevent it. Um, but in general, I think the way that you were talking about it um, is fair and that this is primarily uh, an intervention um, uh, for the developed world and not for the developing world. David, the, the question that I always end these interviews with is either to ask the guest what, what he would do in his own practice or if it's someone who does not have his own clinical practice, uh, what he would uh, or she would recommend for practitioners like, like me. Uh, that's a tough question here. What's your sense? What, what do you recommend to ophthalmologists? Right, well, I, you know, I'm not an ophthalmologist, and I, I don't have the experience of caring for patients. But, um, you know, I do know that, that different people have different needs. So I, I think in general, for the average patient who's accessing the healthcare system in the U.S., um, if you look in their eye and you see signs of early AMD as defined in the paper, which would be large drusen um, or uh, pigment abnormalities, it makes a lot of sense for them to go on vitamins. For affluent patients who are uh, very concerned about their eyesight and uh, very motivated to, to maintain their health, uh, it may make sense for people to go on vitamins uh, even without signs of disease uh, as a prophylactic measure because the Rotterdam study uh, suggests that taking vitamin supplements um, prevents the incidence of AMD. Uh, and also more uh, people who are, have better health statuses and are more motivated to uh, protect their health are probably going to live a lot longer or may live a lot longer. Um, and so there will be a longer amount of time for them to live with the conditions of AMD if they develop it. I mean, that said, everyone's also got patients who, you know, have trouble just maintaining regular healthy, uh, healthy practices. Uh, they may have financial difficulties. Vitamins are not generally reimbursed by insurance uh, or by Medicare. So you, you need to take those issues into account. 
um, if people have many competing uh, um, health concerns that require them to take lots of different prescription medications daily uh, that might upset their stomachs or something like that, you should take that into account before ask them to take an additional vitamin supplement. Um, and finally, I mean, I think that the biggest thing to keep in mind is that um, the vitamin supplements that were shown to be effective both in Aradzan and in Rotterdam uh, contain beta-carotene. And, and there's a number of studies that show that patients who smoke should not take beta-carotene supplements ever. Um, so this would be contraindicated for patients who smoke. David, is there is there anything that you'd like to add, let's say, with regard to the model uh, and its structure, or if there's anything else that you think would be valuable? Please let, let me give you an opportunity. Well, I would like to bring up um, the the staging of, of early AMC that was uh, developed primarily, or, or you know, with very strong input from uh, Dr. Fred Ferris um, from the National Eye Institute. Because uh, it's a little different than how people have thought about AMD before, and essentially, um, the way that they thought about it uh, in the ARD study um, was to stage AMD in terms of the presence or absence of large drusen and pigment abnormalities in, in one or uh, one or both eyes, um, and essentially, the more of the of the combination of those two symptoms patients had, the greater the risk. Uh, of transitioning to late-stage disease. Now, that may sound obvious on its face, but one of the interesting things that they found on in, in the data was that having large drusen in both eyes or having large drusen in one eye and pigment abnormalities in the other eye or having large drusen in one eye and pigment abnormalities in one eye and nothing in the other eye essentially gave you equivalent risks of transitioning. So I think if ophthalmologists could think about uh, the joint health of both eyes in terms of the count of how many um, symptoms patients have uh, from zero, meaning no pigment abnormalities and no large drusen in either eye, to um, four being large drusen uh, and pigment abnormalities in both eyes, um, they can get a good sense of the increasing risk of their patients of progressing to later stage disease, um, at least according to the experience of the ARID study. I have one last question, David. Do you take vitamins? Do I take vitamins? I, I, I do take vitamins. I do not take vitamins for my vision because I'm a, a little too young to be at risk for AMD. David, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for the, the opportunity. David Ryan is a research economist at RTI International. His paper, Cost-Effectiveness of Vitamin Therapy for Age-Related Macular Degeneration, is in press in ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Ryan or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype J. Young, MD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm 
Josh Young.